Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the planet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? Turns out, that story was way bigger than just an optical illusion. It's a cautionary tale about the decline of clickbait sites, the rise of algorithms and internet polarization, and the end of fun on the internet. Seriously, and that's just one story. We're giving every character their 16th minute. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. I just love that your memory of this is us locking eyes across yes, a crowded room. Totally. Like it really is like a romantic moment. Yes. I'm Jessica Bennett. And I'm Susie Banacarum. And this is In Retrospect, where each week we delve into cultural moments that shaped us. And that we just can't stop thinking about. Today, we thought we'd take some time to introduce ourselves. I think it would be fun to introduce each other, so okay. let's try it. Yeah, actually, that's a good idea because I feel like... It's easier to brag on behalf of someone else than it is to brag about yourself. And you have a really impressive bio. Well, same. I think it's really fun to look at friends' bios because I'm always like, wow, you're so much more (laughs) impressive than even I think you are. So I'll do yours first. Okay. So Jessica Bennett started her career at Newsweek. I mean, you started your career a little bit before that, but that's where you had your first big writing job Mm -hmm. and was a culture writer there for a long time Mm -hmm. and then went and ran content for Tumblr for a short period of time when Tumblr was like really hot. Before, I guess, I mean, Tumblr's sort of back now, right? But it's Tum- a little it was back. like Tumblr was trying to do journalism for a hot second and yeah. it was the cool, hot place to be and everyone was there. And then it became just porn. Yeah. And now, <laughs> for a long time. And now maybe it's kind of back and retro and I think it's like cool a retro again. thing now, but I remember being very impressed when you got that job. Yeah, like I, it was it a was cool ve- job. And it was a job that had never existed before. Yeah. Anyhow. Like I was like, oh, of course, Jess got that job. She's so cool. <laughs> and then you went to the New York Times and I think a thing most people know about you is that you were the first gender editor ever at the Times, which mm-hmm. is very impressive. And then I think they don't have the gender editor role anymore, right? No, there is no longer a gender editor. Which I think is interesting. I mean, I think it shows sort of the evolution of thinking around gender. So and it's even sort of just the word. Yeah, yes. and the word and also the idea that lots of things involve gender coverage. It shouldn't be this like isolated silo. But yes, exactly. it was still really important when you got that job. And I remember feeling like it was a really important step. And 
Now you're a columnist for The New York Times. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's important about your career, at least I think so, is that you started a genre that's now very prevalent, but that at the time was a relatively new way to think about the world, which is that you did the first big interview with Monica Lewinsky, Mm. sort of reframing her and thinking about what it meant that we thought of her in a certain way, Mm -hmm. and that you've done that a lot in your career, that you're sort of able to take something that everyone takes as common wisdom and Mm -hmm. turn it on its head and really explore it in a more meaningful way. I really admire that. Uh, Yeah, I've always joked that at a certain point I became the scorned woman beat. Yeah, yeah. So rehabilitating scorned women, which is now kind of everywhere. Everyone's yeah, doing now that it's now. everywhere. Now it's like a cottage industry. I feel like there's like a whole industry of people just trying to... But and I people, think, in fact, that maybe don't deserve to be rehabilitated. Yeah. <laughs> Some people who don't deserve it. But also, I think what's important about the way you did it, and I will die on this hill, is that a lot of these women have not participated in the right. retelling of their own stories. And in some ways, that is really complicated because we're trying to say that the media exploited Britney, but then at the same time, a new batch of people are choosing to sort of mine Britney's story without her consent or participation. And so right. it's a little bit of a complicated dynamic. And I think what's really important about your work is that you've always sort of involved the women at the center of the stories and given them an opportunity to tell their version. Yeah, they of, were they were instrumental to the pieces. Yes, and I think that's really important and also just very journalistic. I really admire that you're a very solid journalist, which Thanks, Susie. I wouldn't say about everyone. <laughs> and I think it's important to note that you wrote a great book called Feminist Fight Club mm-hmm. about an actual feminist fight club you were in. So I'll let you describe that so I don't butcher it. But that book was amazing and was a bestseller. And then you wrote another book with The Times, right, called This Is 18? Yeah, the photography book where we documented the lives of 18-year-old girls around the world. Oh, amazing. I think I saw the New York Times piece, but yes, like a bad it was friend, a pe- I didn't read it's that It's fine. <laughs> it was a piece that then turned into an international photography exhibit and then ultimately became a book with interviews with the girls. Oh, amazing. Um, now I feel like I should pick that up. But I have two copies of Feminist Fight Club, I would like to add. And I send it to like everyone I know. So um, it's a great book. And if you have not seen it or you have a daughter or a niece or someone in your family who you think is coming into their own, I think it's like a great book to give someone who Thanks. is trying to figure out how to operate in the world. And in the working world, specifically. In the working world, specifically. And that's Should, my little introduction. That's great. That was great. Yeah, was like, I, I feel like, I, do. I don't know that you even, oh, I guess the only thing you missed is that I now teach journalism at NYU. Oh, right. To graduate students, a class called Reporting the Zeitgeist. Yes. Which is very fun because I learn as much about the zeitgeist from my students as I think they learn about reporting it from me. Yes. And actually, I just think it's like a fun topic. I also taught like two classes at some point mm-hmm. and it was really fun to teach I think eventually I want to do that again yeah but I, I it pays nothing it pays nothing really so you yeah. have to really be at a stage in your life I remember because it paid nothing I took on two classes at once you know I had taught like LSAT when I was much younger but this I never taught Harvard? like a real school yes it was when I finished my fellowship at Harvard okay. and they asked us if we wanted to teach at the extension school and I did Let's go into your bio. Oh, okay, I yeah. feel like I don't want to start your bio with Harvard because it sounds so snotty. Yeah, and that's and also, not it's who like you a are. very small percentage. So of let's my just <laughs> let's like put that on pause. We'll come back to it. Okay, so Susie, you and I met 
about a decade ago, and we'll get to our whole meeting story. Our meet cute. Uh, yes, you're our meet cute. <laughs> but you were a really seasoned producer. You began your career at World News Tonight. You had produced for Diane Sawyer. And then you actually went on to become a media executive. Like, yes. maybe that feels like a weird term. But whenever I'm describing you to friends, I'm like, yeah, my friend Zuzi's run, like, every newsroom. I mean, that is not true, but I have but a lot run of newsrooms. what someone once described as two of the most notorious asylums in media. Oh, that's great. So Gizmodo Media. Gizmodo Media Group. And Vice. Yeah, so Gizmodo Media Group is all the former Gawker sites. When Gawker went bankrupt, Univision bought all the sites but Gawker. So sites like Jezebel, Gizmodo, Deadspin, Kotaku, Jalopnik, The Root. I don't want to forget one splinter. Uh, So I did that, and then I did run the newsroom at Vice for one year. But you actually, my first job in journalism... Was oh, yeah. not. <laughs> Fun fact. Fun fact. Well, that's, uh, my first job in journalism was actually at NBC. I went to journalism school to change careers. I had been a management consultant. Oh, that's right. And then I was like, I need to do something meaningful yeah. with my life. And I went to journalism school for a year. And I got hired into this diversity program at mm-hmm. NBC. And they would rotate you through all the shows. So I worked okay. at the Today Show and I worked at Nightly News. Okay. And at the end of the year... It was really low pay. It was like, even back then, it was so low. It was like $30,000, which I just remember going into credit card debt that year. And when the year was over, they offered me a job at the Today Show, but it was like for $35,000. Something like I was just like, that's untenable for me. And somehow I got connected to someone who was starting a new show called Wife Swap. (laughs) And I worked as an associate producer on the first year of Wife Swap. Wife Swap. Yes. It's great. You've really, there's a lot of high-low in your bio. Yes, there's a lot of high-low. And, you know, it's funny because sometimes in my career, there have been points in my career where people have told me not to talk about the low, like where people have been like, maybe you don't want to tell people about Wife Swap. And I've always rejected that because I think it's part of what makes me an interesting producer and an interesting journalist is that yeah. I really embrace a lot of variable yes, <laughs> projects. Yes, yes. And I actually think that's one of the subjects that we bond over. Like, that's a lot of what we're trying to do here, which we'll yeah. talk a little bit more about. But it's looking at some elements of, quote unquote, low culture in a smart way yes. and a meaningful way. Okay, let's not forget the documentary that you produced and directed about Donald Trump and the political press called Enemies of the People. Yeah, so I did this fellowship at Harvard, which all my friends are going to die that that's how we started this conversation because they just love to give me shit about this. Uh Like, they're like, oh, is this your Harvard magazine? Like, where's your Harvard mug? (laughs) They just think it's so funny because I'm not actually the kind of person you would associate with that. You went to Barnard, right? I went to Barnard undergrad. I went to Columbia for grad school. We're like a Barnard Columbia family through and through, which I guess is also obnoxious. I mean, I just come from a family. Like, we're an immigrant family. So those things were so important to my family, you know. Immigrants from Iran. Immigrants from Iran. I'm Iranian. So I did this fellowship and then I came back to New York and I had my first executive job or Mm -hmm. management job is probably more correct. And I was working at this small place and it was like the vanity project for like a very nice, rich Israeli billionaire. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure some people don't think he's very nice because I don't know how you become Mm -hmm. a billionaire by being very nice, but who, you know, had just started this project and was paying us pretty good money. And we had a lot of really cool people who were working with us, people I still keep in touch with and who've had amazing careers. That shop was called Vocative. It no longer exists. Right. I remember that. I was, wasn't I a consultant there for like one second? I think you were. Yeah. 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 I don't know that I could You actually actually... introduced me to the person who hired me there. Okay. I don't think I actually consulted on anything, but, um, or received a a paycheck. Anyway. (laughs) Um, 
But so that was winding down. It became clear that he was yeah. like, oh, wait, you can't make any money in media. And I was like, yep. could have told you that, but yep. <laughs> thank you for keeping me employed for a few years. And I had a friend who was running the Shorenstein Center mm-hmm. at Harvard. <laughs> and I just love how many times I've had Which to say that media, word. Which is It's like a media is. and politics policy center okay. that they have. And he approached me and asked if I was interested in doing a project. Okay. And initially I pitched an oral history, like a written oral history, mm. because we had been covering the Trump campaign kind of tangentially. Like we were really focused on technology in that newsroom. So mm-hmm. we weren't like a general politics yep. shop and we didn't send someone out to cover it. And I, I just watched all these people I knew making really hard decisions about how to cover that campaign. Yeah. And I just did not think I would necessarily have done a better job. Like it just seemed so hard to cover yeah. that campaign and know how to do it because Trump just changed the playbook so much and people were constantly playing catch up. And I was just curious. It was in 2017 and Mm -hmm. I was genuinely curious to just interview all these people I knew about what it felt like to be in the eye of that storm because so many things happened every day during the Trump presidency that it was easy to like forget what had happened the week before. And so this friend of mine came back to me and said, what if we made a film? And so that's how the documentary happened. It was like very lucky, to be honest. Like I feel really lucky to have had that opportunity. And And people can still watch it. Mm -hmm. Oh, Enemies of the People on YouTube. And I think what's sort of interesting about it is I did talk to people like Jeff Zucker and Jake Tapper and also Mm -hmm. like Maggie Maggie Haberman and like lots of people who were covering it at the time for newspapers and for TV And I think the thing that's interesting is now we're getting to another election. Yeah. And it feels like people are just making the same mistakes again. And that has been really hard to watch, I have to say. People who were in the movie (laughs) have said things where I'm like, but you are just doing the same thing. It's very hard to watch. And so I feel feel like maybe um, it didn't make as big a dent as I hoped it would. <laughs> All right. So maybe you need a part two or maybe we need to re-promote it a little bit and get people to watch it. Yeah. Maybe. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the internet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? But there's way more to this story than that. The dress went viral in early 2015, marking one of the last months that the internet could still be fun. It was just before Trump declared his candidacy for president and polarized and already polarized internet. It was just shy of people deciding what went viral instead of algorithms. And it was just shy of celebrities realizing that they should never, ever tweet. It's more than a character of the day. It's an entire moment in time bottled in a little, well, either blue and black or white and gold package. I'm not relitigating it again. You cannot make it. And that's just one story. We've got a million. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from. That's Decodering, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by the New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. Let's talk about how we met. So I was at Newsweek and that was my first real job out of college. I'd done like, as you did back then, a bunch of unpaid internships. I was working in a bar to actually pay my rent. And then I finally got hired at Newsweek and I spent a number of years there. And then at a certain point, Newsweek, which then was like still a real magazine. A very important magazine. Respected magazine. It had one time been my dream job. It got put up for sale. It was put up for sale by the Washington Post company which owned it, and it was sold to a 90-year-old man named Sidney Harmon for $1 plus debt. And then he died. And so it was like, do we have jobs? Do we not have jobs? And then Tina Brown came forward and was going to edit the magazine. And Tina Brown was running the Daily Beast. Had you worked at the Daily Beast at that point? No. So what happened was I interviewed at the Daily Beast, Uh and then I turned and noticed at ABC News, which is where I was at the Uh time. And by the time I started my job, like a month later, the merger <laughs> had, had merged. Happened. Yeah. Okay. And so it was always referred to as like this marriage of brands. Yeah. And all of the Newsweek reporters who had to add Daily Beast into their email addresses. So like I was Jessica.Bennett at Newsweek.com. And then suddenly I was Jessica.Bennett at NewsweekDailyBeast.com. Try <laughs> spelling that out to someone who yeah. needs to email you. They're like, what in the hell is this? We were like... We hate this. Yeah. It was definitely like not a happy marriage. It was not a happy marriage. But in my recollection, I don't know, it was like a couple of weeks after this merger occurred. We were now all in the same office and Tina Brown was putting on her Women in the World conference, which was this big event, live journalism event. It was at Lincoln Center, I think. No. So the year we did it, eventually it would be at Lincoln Center. But the year we did it, it was at like some hotel in Midtown called like the Millennium. Oh, that's right. Okay. Like across from like a barbecue place. And (laughs) well, so I specifically remember being in like some sad, small hotel room where all the producers were. And 
It was absolute chaos. Someone was crying. There were papers being thrown. Someone had dropped out. I was being asked to produce a live journalism thing. I I didn't know anything about production (laughs) at that point. And you were in there. And at one point, we didn't know each other. And we just looked at each other. And we're like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, is this as crazy as it seems. I just love that your memory of this is us locking eyes across a crowded room. Like it really is like a romantic moment. Yes. And then I think we, well, you might remember it differently, but then in my recollection, we left this room and we're like, do you want to get coffee? Can we talk about how insane insane this this is? So the slight difference, I think that is kind of how I remember it, although I don't have quite as romantic a moment. (laughs) But what I remember is that I started and literally I had to go to the Newsweek offices, which I had never seen for my first day to get my paperwork. And on my way up to get my paperwork, I was like in an elevator with two people who had just been laid off from the tech team. It was very intense. And I get there and this guy introduces himself to me who would be Ramin Satuta, one of our close friends who is now the editor-in-chief of Variety, but at that time was your work husband and Mm -hmm. a writer at Newsweek. And he was like, are you Iranian? And we bonded over that. And then he was like, oh, are you going to Women in the World? You have to find Jess. She'll make everything better. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And so I do know that at some point we met and I was like, oh, you're Jess. So like I was looking for you, but I don't think you were looking for me. Oh my God, but I didn't know I was looking for you. You didn't know, you didn't know, but you were. Oh, wow. (laughs) This is so embarrassing for us. It's like, get a room. But also, I do remember getting there and being like, everyone is like crying and screaming. It was a very crazy atmosphere. Yes. Things being thrown. Yeah. Really, really wild. But for some reason, that conference just made everybody crazy. It It was like a pressure cooker. And all around it, people were being laid off. The magazine was, it was like, are we going to even print anymore? What is going on? What is my job? When I started there, I hit kind of the tail end of it in that, you know, we were still in the old building. It had this beautiful view of Central Park. I had my own office when I got a promotion. It had a view of the park. We had town car rides home. If you stayed past, I think, 7 p.m. on Thursday nights, there was this like beautiful catered dinner that would be up on the 18th floor with a view of the city. And it was like, wine and shit, whatever, drinks and, and three courses, like foie gras, like whatever. Yeah, anyway, I definitely did not get any of that. That got cut very quickly, but for a moment, it was really crazy. Yeah. And also, like at magazines, the editors used to have their own standing, like town car that would take yes. them to and from yes. their jobs. And in TV, it was the same way. Like the hosts and the executives all had cars waiting outside. Like now they don't do it that way. It's but just totally. I mean, I yeah, like that was the only office I will ever have. Only private office I will ever, ever have. have. As right. I like sadly work from my bed now. Yeah. I mean, even when I like ran things, I didn't have my own office. That's just not the world we live in anymore. So let's talk a little bit about what we're both doing. The world we do live in. We do now. live in now. We're kind of where we are. So yeah. What are we doing now? I mean, we both work from home. I have a dog and (laughs) I'm sort of torn, as we've discussed, between my former ambitious self and wanting to be a freelancer and do different things. And this podcast is part of that. And just like kind of chill. Yeah. So it's interesting because I always think of you as more ambitious than I am. I don't think that was always because you were like an executive, like an actual executive. I know. I know. It's a really weird thing about me. I know. But like, I feel like you have like ambitious goals and like things you want to do. And I feel like I kind of just rode this wave, you know, (laughs) like I never had a plan. I just went from thing to thing and hoped for the best. And sometimes it was the best and sometimes it was the very worst. But 
I definitely feel like I have shifted and changed a lot. I mean, I think a lot of people say that about the pandemic, and Mm -hmm. I think the pandemic was part of it. But, you know, I think also running newsrooms in this media environment is really heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, it's like... Your job is to cut. Yeah, your job is to cut. And I've had to do layoffs almost every year of my career for the last, like, I don't know, five or six years, maybe longer. So it is hard to imagine having the heart for that anymore, which is why I'm doing other things. I work with The Meteor, which is also the executive producer of this show, Mm -hmm. um, which is a company started by Cindy Levy, who is a former editor of Glamour. And it's a gender equity media organization. I'm an editor at large there, and I'm doing this podcast. And I love this because I feel like I'm actually doing something creative. Yeah. Like I'm actually trying to make something and it's new and it's challenging yeah. and it's hard, which I, I like. But you're in it. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but after being an editor for a number of years, I was just like, I don't want to be in management. Like that's right. not it's not my skill set. That's not what I want to do. I have a lot of problems of my own and yeah. solving other people's <laughs> problems is like not a thing that I love or I'm particularly yeah. good at. But okay, so... This, of course, led us both to this podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the internet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? But there's way more to this story than that. The dress went viral in early 2015, marking one of the last months that the internet could still be fun. It was just before Trump declared his candidacy for president and polarized and already polarized internet. It was just shy of people deciding what went viral instead of algorithms. And it was just shy of celebrities realizing that they should never, ever tweet. It's more than a character of the day. It's an entire moment in time bottled in a little, well, either blue and black or white and gold package. I'm not relitigating it again. You cannot make it. And that's just one story. We've got a million. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decodering, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. Let's talk about the podcast. I recall that I was in Palm Springs on vacation with a couple of friends and we were in a marijuana shop as you do and I got <laughs> as a one call. would be in California as one would be although now in New York also but um, not as good not uh, <laughs> true and and not at that time and my friend Susie called and I was in the checkout line and you were like hey I've been talking about this idea and you know you've done all of these stories about taking characters in the present and looking at the way that we talked about them and framed them in the past. And I was thinking it could be really interesting to look at specific pop culture moments from the past. And what if we called it in retrospect? (laughs) And I said, oh, my God, that's the perfect name for this thing that I've been kind of trying to articulate and have been swirling around and have been really interested in. And I had just been in the car with this friend that I was in Palm Springs with where a song came on the radio and she said, oh, my God, do you know this song? And I was like, no, I don't know what this is. And she's like, this is the, like, disco song that was playing in the background when Luke raped Laura on General Hospital. Oh, my God. And you, when you called me, were like, I was talking to Cindy about it, and we thought that Luke and Laura on General Hospital, who ultimately get married, but what most people forget is that actually he originally raped her. That's how the relationship began. Could be an interesting first episode. And so it was sort of like all of these things came together. You know, the weed shop, my gummies, you on the phone, Luke and Laura, (laughs) the disco track. It's like another moment of fate that brought us together. Yeah. I think the thing is, is that I really wanted to do this with you because I felt like you bring something that I just do not bring to this, which is like a much more intellectual point of view, to be honest. Like, you know me, I like love Bravo and The Real Housewives Mm -hmm. and I watch Hallmark movies. Mm -hmm. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) I have like a very low sensibility. And also, you know, I like some other things, but I'm definitely not as deeply embedded in sort of the intellectual space (laughs) that we are going to occupy. And I also feel like, you know, there was this thing that we really both embraced about it, which is it's not just important to look at what happened to these women, although that's really important. But it's also important to sort of turn that lens around and be like, what did we learn as girls and women growing up and consuming consuming these things, seeing what happened to people and kind of what messages it told us about how we were supposed to operate in the world and Mm -hmm. what it meant if we struggled in any of these various ways and mm-hmm. like what that said about us. So I really love that we're getting to do this together. It really I sound so cheesy, but it's true. And it's really hard for me to say nice things. So just like <laughs> don't expect this a lot. But Which is one of the things I love. I mean, I think one of the reasons we are friends and this works for us is that we're both pretty blunt. Yeah. Like we say it how it is. I grew up in Seattle, which is like the most passive aggressive place imaginable like you can't even honk at someone without it being seen as like a major affront so 
and I aggression. feel so refreshed by people who will just state the thing. And I think we both want to yeah, do we're that, both like that while at the same time wanting to like leave some room for gray area and not just take all of these moments and pop culture things and subjects that happened in the past and proclaim them quote unquote problematic and yeah. thus forward nobody shall enjoy them ever again. Like it's yeah. not that simple. It's not. And I think also I'm very much a product of the pop culture I consumed. Yes. And I don't think that's a bad thing. You yeah. know, like I'm sure there are some messages I internalized that, well, I know there are some messages I internalized that I shouldn't have. But on the other hand, like I was an immigrant girl from Iran. I came to this country when I was four. It's a lot of how I learned what it meant to be an American. Yep. Like if I had not had that, I would have been even more confused than I already was. Like yeah. we went from Iran to Paris and then to this very suburban town in California in the East Bay of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I definitely was not the norm, you yeah. know? So that's like how I kind of learned about the world around me. So it's complicated our relationship with these things. Like you can love something like Bravo, but mm-hmm. also understand the ways that it's not always been great yeah. and maybe is not great. Although I will die on the hill that I think Bravo is a woman's workplace drama and that we should respect oh, it as such. <laughs> okay, well, we should unpack that. We in shall, a future we shall episode. unpack that eventually. And I think that's really what we want to do here. Every week we will take a cultural moment, whether it's a news headline that we remember from the time or an episode of Dawson's Creek, yeah. which I grew up on, or some word that was catapulted into the zeitgeist. And we will unravel what was happening at the time, the cultural context, and how we interpreted it and internalized it and what repercussions or impact that has, if any, on where we are today. So we would love it if you went on this journey with us. Susie, you're so cheesy, but I agree. (laughs) This is In Retrospect. Thanks for listening. Is there a cultural moment you can't stop thinking about and want us to explore in a future episode? Email us at inretropod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at inretropod. If you love this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. If you hate it, you can post nasty comments on our Instagram, which we may or may not delete. You can also find us on Instagram at Jessica Bennett and at Suzy B NYC. Also check out Jessica's books, Feminist Fight Club and This Is 18. In Retrospect is a production of iHeart Podcasts and The Meteor. Lauren Hansen is our supervising producer. Derek Clements is our engineer and sound designer. Sharon Atiyah is our researcher and associate producer. Our executive producer from The Meteor is Cindy Levy. Our executive producers from iHeart are Anna Stumpf and Katrina Norvell. Our artwork is from Pentagram. Additional editing help from Mary Dew and Mike Coscarelli. Sound correction and mastering by Amanda Rose Smith. We are your hosts, Susie Banacarum and Jessica Bennett. We're also executive producers. For even more, check out inretropod.com. See you next week. Psst, there's a shortcut to platinum status at Shell. To saving 10 cents per gallon on every fill every day. Just fill up six times with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline and it's yours. Plus, you'll rejuvenate your engine. Get ready to level up performance, rewards, and savings. With continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors, Platinum status is earned with 12 Phillips over three months, 10-gallon minimum per Phillip at participating Shell locations. Terms apply. Visit fuelrewards.com status. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the planet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? Turns out, that story was way bigger than just an optical illusion. It's a cautionary tale about the decline of clickbait sites, the rise of algorithms and internet polarization, and the end of fun on the internet. Seriously, and that's just one story. We're giving every character their 16th minute. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.